Well, a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to look at Psalm 88, uh, one of the last psalms of book three in the Psalter. Well, tonight we're going to look at Psalm 93, a shorter psalm, uh, one of the earlier psalms in the fourth book. So if you would, please turn in your Psalter, or your, your Bibles rather, to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. Here we read, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Well, one of my earliest or my fondest memories as a young boy was sitting on my mother's knee or my father's knee before bed, singing children's songs. Now, boys and girls, some of you probably do that with mom and dad before bed. I'm sure you have some favorite songs that you like to sing. Maybe Jesus Loves Me or the B-I-B-L-E. Well, one of the songs that I really enjoyed singing as a young boy was the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. And as a young child, I must have thought, God's hands must be huge. They must be immense for Him to hold the whole earth and all of the other planets in His hands. And of course, as I grew up, I realized that God doesn't have hands like you or me, but that that little song that I used to sing before bed nevertheless contained very important and a very profound truth, the simple but profound truth that our sovereign God reigns. In fact, it's that theme, those few words there, the Lord reigns, that makes up the theme of Psalm 93, the psalm I've just read, a psalm that, that calls us to rejoice in the permanence, the stability of the sovereign reign of God, God's sovereign kingship. Sometimes our world seems to be a very unstable and unruly place to the degree that we might wonder, is God really in control? Is He really in charge of what's going on in my life and in the world around me? But this psalm comes to us tonight just as it came to the people of Israel of old, and it calls us to rejoice in the truth that our Lord is the sovereign King who gives order to this world. He's a sovereign King who fights for His church, who fights for you and fights for me to protect us. He's the sovereign King who provides His mighty help and His trustworthy guidance, even amidst the trials of this life. And so tonight we're going to look at that theme, our Lord reigns, as we pick apart Psalm 93. And the first thing we notice here in the first two verses is a description of the Lord's reign in sovereignty. 
The first two verses here describe the nature of God's kingly reign, and there are at least four characteristics of God's reign that we can uh, notice and pull out of this passage, and I want you to notice that these aspects of God's sovereignty are also part of His character, part of His divine nature. First, in verse 1, we read, the Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. Boys and girls, I'm sure that you've studied a little bit about the kings of Israel in Sunday school. You've learned about King David and King Solomon, and you know that the kings of Israel often were robed in beautiful kingly garments. Those kingly garments show that they had authority, that they had dignity. Everyone who saw them realized from those robes that they were important, they were powerful, they were the king. Well, the majesty of God, described here in Psalm 93, is far supreme to that of any mere human king. Our God, the psalmist says, is robed, figuratively of course, He's robed in a divine majesty and glory. He's the great king over all kings. He is the great God above all gods, lowercase g, as we read in Psalm 95 as our call to worship. Our God, the God of heaven and earth, He has no need to impress because He is the only truly sovereign and holy ruler over all things. It's God's majesty uh, that is an attribute that connects His sovereignty with His holiness. And that's why uh, Isaiah, when he comes before the majestic holiness of God's presence, he can only cry out, woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Our God is majestic in His holiness and His power. Secondly, the psalmist says that God has put on strength as His belt. An older way of saying this is that God has has girded Himself with. He has put on strength and power. Kings like David and Solomon didn't just wear kingly robes to show that they were king and that they were powerful and mighty. Sometimes they wore a different kind of garment during battle, during war, or during a military parade. They also wore armor. They put a belt on and they wore a sword at their side to show that they held a majestic position as commander-in-chief. They had military power and authority. But we know that sometimes their earthly power faded. King David and King Solomon didn't win all of their battles. Sometimes they only appeared to be powerful. But our mighty God doesn't just have the appearance of power. He's not just putting on an act. He has one-of-a-kind, actual, divine power by which He rules and sustains this whole earth. And he's prepared to enter into battle on behalf of his people. There's not an enemy that exists that can defeat those who have God as their king. And so we would do well to obey the words of Psalm 146 and Psalm 105, which call us, do not put your trust in princes, in those in whom there is no salvation but seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. 
Well, in the third place, we're told the end of verse 1, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The psalm tells us not only that God's power is great, that His, His power uh, is steadfast, but also that the world that He has made is steadfast in its working. It's unmovable. It's stable in its functioning. You often, when we go to the beach, I often sit there on the sand and I look as, as the waves roll up to the shore, to the sandy shore, and they go only so far, and then they go back to where they came from. Scripture speaks in many places about the fact that God has set boundaries. He set boundaries for the mountains. They stay put. They don't move. He set boundaries for the waters. They don't overtake the land. But why is that so? Why does the world function in a stable way? The world's stability is only due to the ultimate stability of God's throne, His rulership, His reign as king over all. While this world does change, and our bodies change, we can be assured that our God never changes. He's truly immutable. We use that word to describe the unchanging character of God. And the character of His righteous kingdom doesn't change. Brothers and sisters, we can take wonderful comfort in that. We can take comfort and assurance in the fact that our majestic and holy and powerful God will always rule according to His righteous character forever and ever. He cannot change. But we're also warned that we must fear Him. We must revere Him as Lord and obey His commandments, for He is the God who has established all things. Well, that leads us to the fourth and final characteristic of the Lord's reign. We read here finally, your throne is established from of old, verse 2, you are from everlasting. The psalmist says that our God and His, His throne, His kingship are from everlasting. They're eternal. God is. He has always been. He always will be. Uh, his, his power, His might doesn't come and go as the seasons change. He doesn't, there's no term limits on His sovereignty. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe from generation to generation. That's why Psalm 90 declares this, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. And what does that mean for us? That God and His throne are eternal. It means, once again, that our God is utterly trustworthy. He can be trusted to continue being who He reveals Himself to be in His Word. His character will never change. He will never go back on His promises that He has made. So let's not ignore Him. Let's not ignore Him in His Word. Let's not run counter to His eternal reign, but let's offer ourselves to Him in worship and in praise in light of the splendor of His kingly might. Let's cast our cares upon our God because He loves us, and that love is unchanging. 
Well, while the first two verses that we've just looked at declare that the world is a stable place because of the, the stable, eternal, sovereign reign of God, verses 3 and 4 seem to call that stability of our world into question. seems to contradict it. Read in verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. The rushing of the mighty waters crescendo in their opposition to the Lord and His kingly reign. You might wonder, is this world really all that stable? As we look at our world around us, it so often seems to be the case that this world is a very frightening place. It's very unruly. It's a very contrary place. Uh, wars and political hostilities rage on. It seems like one comes right after another. Famines and disease and earthquakes and floods and other such disasters plague our world. Corrupt leaders of all kinds seem to have their way, while those who stand on the side of righteousness suffer. Their life is hard. Here, even the psalmist in verse 3 seems to reflect possible despair in the instability of this world. Not the stability, but the instability of this world. There's, a, there's desperation in the voice of the psalmist as he says, Lord, the floods have lifted up. Old Testament scholars debate what these roaring waters are in this psalm. But throughout Scripture, we do read about roaring and rushing waters. Isaiah in chapter 17 says that the thunder and the roar of the nations and the peoples are like the thundering of mighty waters. And so we might conclude that the waters here in the psalm represent any earthly enemy, any earthly power or force that would threaten to topple the Lord's kingdom, that would threaten to to oppose the church and disintegrate God's creation and discourage our hearts as God's people. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter says to the church in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says to them, be watchful, be on your guard against your enemy, the devil, because he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The reality, as this psalm explains to us, is that we, as God's covenant people, we live in the midst of an ongoing battle between our God's sovereign kingship, His kingdom over all, and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places that would seek to undo His power, who would seek to steal away His chosen people. We must recognize that that spiritual cosmic battle touches every part of our lives as believers. And it might lead us in times of turmoil and trial to cry out desperately to the Lord, Oh Lord, the floods have lifted up. They're surrounding me. They are threatening me. I am desperate in my plea for help. And then we have the response to that instability in our world and in our own lives, verse 4, mightier, mightier than the, the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. 
A general sense of verse 4 is this, that yes, while the voice of many waters and the waves of the sea are mighty and they may trouble us for a time, the Lord on high is even more mighty and supremely powerful. Even though a world that is hostile to God's reign, even though a world that is hostile to the church may rage on for a time, we can be assured that nothing will ultimately threaten our security in God who reigns. To give you some perspective on this psalm, think with me for a moment how this message must have given comfort and hope to God's covenant people Israel as they languished in exile in Assyria and Babylon. There in the land of their enemy captors, they found themselves in a very difficult and trying situation. They dearly missed their homeland. They missed that wonderful land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised on oath to their forefathers that He would give them. They thought of God's house, His temple, which had been destroyed, laid waste, and abandoned. They thought about the fact, they lamented the fact that God's appointed king in the line of David no longer sat on the throne in Jerusalem anymore. Thundering forces, bent on overturning God's promise and God's kingly reign, seemed to have won as God's people sat in exile, away from their home, away from the king, away from the temple. And yet, yet the people of Israel could read or sing this psalm, Psalm 93, as a manual that instructed them of how to sustain truly fulfilled and hopeful lives, even in the midst of their terrible situation in exile, even with the Davidic kingship and the temple laid waste. This psalm responded to Israel's crisis of faith while they were in exile. Even while suffering, they could sing this psalm and others like it to remind them that the promises of God and the power of God was not destroyed. The Lord still reigns. His promises are still in effect. They are still yes and amen. And so this psalm, Psalm 93, offers a much-needed response to the call or the crisis of faith raised in Psalm 89, the end of book 3. The psalmist says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? It may have seemed that that faithfulness had, had passed away from the earth, that it no longer existed, but this psalm says, it's still here. God is still sovereign. His steadfast love is still in effect. God is mightier than those waves that roar and threaten the church. And so this psalm calls God's people to live with faith and hope in the Lord's universal reign, even in the midst of circumstances that seem to deny it or contradict it. This psalm must have reminded the people of Israel about Psalm 90. You remember Psalm 90? A psalm credited to Moses. Psalm 90 must have called Israel back to a time gone by, a time in her history when there was no king on the throne. Indeed, it was a time when there was no throne. There was no Davidic king, no monarchy. God had not yet established His covenant with David. 
And yet Israel had a king. Israel had a king then. God himself was Israel's royal refuge before David's throne ever came into existence. The Lord was her dwelling place in all generations. What a blessed assurance that must have offered God's people in their crisis of faith. What blessed comfort we have from knowing that our sovereign King is Lord of all, and He's working all things together for the good of His people, even while the waters thunder and the nations rage. Well, finally, as we come to verse 5, the scene of this psalm changes somewhat. We read here, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Most of the psalm, as we've seen, focuses on God's sovereignty as the king of the universe. But now here in verse 5, at the conclusion to the psalm, it's God's trustworthy decrees, God's law, and the holiness of His house that is the focus of the psalm. That may seem like a strange transition, but it won't seem strange to us if you remember there's another psalm that makes a very similar transition, Psalm 19. Psalm 19 makes a similar shift. It begins by describing the glory, the power of God in all of creation, and then it moves on to focus on uh, God's laws and the holiness of His Word. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is it's not just God's kingly reign. It's not just the world that is stable and firmly established. It's also God's Word. The law of God, the Word of God given to His church is firmly established on the basis of His kingly rule and reign. And we as God's people Having been transformed by the Holy Spirit, it's now our joyful responsibility to seek God's law, to live holy lives in accord with His kingly rule over our lives. The psalmist talks about the holiness, the fitting of God's house. Peter, in chapter uh, 2 of his epistle, says that we are God's house that we, like living stones, have been built up by the Holy Spirit as a spiritual house, a temple unto the Lord, and the same holiness that was befitting of the temple is befitting of us. It's fitting that the holiness that belongs to God's house should adorn our lives as we live and serve as the willing subjects of our risen and reigning God in heaven. Just as holiness is the outstanding characteristic of God's house, so that virtue of holiness is to be the virtue that characterizes us. For Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so the psalmist wants us to understand that God certainly rules all of creation by His might, but He rules us as His church by His Word, as the sovereign King of the universe. But we cannot miss, finally, this very important truth 
that God rules us by His Word. He rules us in sovereignty. He rules us specifically by His Messiah King, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus who is the sovereign ruler of the universe and the one who guides us by His Word and His perfect testimonies. It's very important that we never separate what the entire Old Testament says about the kingdom of God from what it also says about Israel's expectation for the coming Messiah, the one who would bring salvation to God's people. What the Old Testament says about the reign of the Lord is bound up, it's inseparably connected to the prophecies about the Messiah King, the messianic promise of peace for the people of God. Isaiah 11 talks about all nations coming to the root of Jesse, that kingly member of David's line who one day will draw all the nations to himself under his head, under his kingly reign, and that man is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the promised and coming ruler of the world. And so every time in the Old Testament, like here in Psalm 93, which mentions the coming reign of the Lord, that's always connected with the promise of the Redeemer King of David's line. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one pictured here. And throughout the New Testament, you notice all of the ways that our Lord Jesus fulfills that role of a Messiah King, a Savior and a ruler. At the beginning of His gospel, Matthew announces that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, he belongs to the kingly line of David. In Philippians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus is praised and exalted as the divine king who rules the universe on behalf of his people. In 1 Timothy 6 and Revelation 19, he bears a twofold title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, a name that only God could claim. As we look at Jesus' work throughout the New Testament, what role does He play? What tasks does He have? He is tasked with vanquishing chaotic foes, rushing waters, tempestuous seas. He's appointed to enter into battle, spiritual battle, on behalf of His people, the church, and to defeat all of her enemies. Even the miraculous works of Jesus, His miracles, bear witness to this. To the stormy seas, Jesus says, peace, be still. Literally, He says, be silent, be muzzled. That same word is used later on in Mark 1 and Luke 4 when Jesus silences the demons, those minions of the devil Himself. The testimonies of Jesus Christ are mightier and more powerful than those of any surging sea or any rebellious demon. And it was His arrival, His coming to earth in the fullness of time to establish cosmic order, to exalt the kingdom of God. That's what fulfilled the longing of God's people, the people of Israel. And yet Jesus' exaltation as king 
led him to places that few anticipated he would go. Few of the worshipers who were hailing Jesus as king during his ride into Jerusalem really understood his task as the Redeemer King. Few understood that he would conquer chaos and bring abundant life through his own suffering and death. And yet that's what he did. Even there on the cross, as Jesus suffered as the suffering servant of Isaiah, as our Savior, as our Messiah, even there on the cross, Jesus was not defeated. But it was there that he defeated all of the forces that oppose the abundant and ordered life that God intends for us. Even on the cross, he was king over all. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that even after His victorious resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ now reigns and He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet, even that final enemy of death itself. Although forces of chaos may still threaten this earth and threaten Jesus' church, Revelation 17 says the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And by His own death, by His burial and resurrection, Jesus has secured for you victory over death, assuring you that nothing can defeat you. Even now, He is not separate from you. He's not distant from you. Jesus Christ remains with us here tonight, right now, by His Holy Spirit who is strengthening you as children of God to be a holy priesthood, a holy nation, to do battle with the enemy, with the spiritual weapons that he has provided, that armor of the faith. His Word, preached here Sunday after Sunday, continues to give us strength and encouragement and direction. No matter what you are facing in life, brothers and sisters, no matter what trial or rushing roaring river or wave. Your victory is secure in Jesus Christ, the King who reigns over all. One day He will return. And on that day, all will praise Him and exalt Him, for His kingship will be evident to all. No one will be capable of missing it. Everyone will bow before Him, and we will live in the the glory of the victory that He has accomplished for us. In faith, we look forward to that day, that glorious day of His kingly return, that day when our Messiah King, Jesus Christ, will be exalted before all as the Lord who reigns. That day will witness a choir of God's people of which we will be a part as we sing in the setting of a new creation, all together exclaiming with consummate joy, hallelujah, For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we are amazed at the the power and the might and the glory of Christ that is revealed here even in the Psalms. For we know that it is impossible to separate what Your Word says about Your kingdom and Your power and Your glory and Your sovereignty 
from the greatest display of those attributes in the coming and the work and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord who reigns over all. He is the one who reigns in sovereignty over all earthly kings, all earthly powers. He is the Lord, the King who reigns over the tumultuous seas and the raging demons. He's the one who reigns over the trials and sufferings and discouragements in our own lives. And we thank you that this Messiah King, the hope of Israel, the hope of the church, is the one who reigns now and must reign until he has placed all of his enemies, all of our enemies, under his feet. O oh Lord, we look forward to the day when that, that rulership, that reign will be complete and consummate and recognized and exalted by all. But, O oh Lord, we as your people now rejoice that we can glorify you now in the glory of your sovereignty. Lord, remind us of your sovereign care. May we take comfort in that. May we be assured by your sovereign reign. May we never take it for granted or lose sight of that glorious reality. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.